0: Hey, Drilled listeners, tomorrow, the next episode in our education series with Earther is coming out. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I wanted to share with you another project I've been working on. I'm co-hosting this season of one of my favorite podcasts, Seen on Radio. It's a documentary and history podcast out of the Duke University Center for Documentary Studies from John B. Wynn. And this season is looking at the climate crisis, where it came from, how we might get out, why the U.S. has played such an oversized role in driving it, all those things. I think if you're a listener to this show, you'll appreciate that one. So I wanted to share the first episode with you here. The first three episodes are out now. If you want to keep listening, I'll drop a link in the show notes. Here's Scene on Radio Season 5, The Repair, Episode 1. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not gonna happen. (laughs) But one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing EarthBreeze. I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze sheets totally changed the game unlike powder or liquid earth breeze actually looks like a dryer sheet but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent and it's super easy you just throw it into your laundry and that's it there's no measuring there's no lugging anything around your laundry comes out clean it smells great i love it it's genuinely made my life easier it's also dermatologist tested hypoallergenic free of bleach and dyes so it's perfect for every load you'll never run out of detergent again thanks to EarthBreeze's easy flexible subscription you can adjust pause or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties and you save a whopping 40 percent when you subscribe plus shipping is always free and eco sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space it also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over a hundred million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40 four, zero. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription.
1: Season 5 is supported by you, our listeners, and by the International Women's Media Foundation.
0: In the beginning, in the beginning God, God created, created the heavens and the earth.
2: We begin tonight with the state of emergency in California as historic heat fuels dangerous wildfires. Parts of
3: Australia have been
2: hit by the worst flooding in a century.
3: Southern Africa is facing one of its deadliest droughts ever.
1: And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind.
0: kind. And trees bearing fruit, fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good.
1: Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures.
2: In the next 30 years, rising sea levels could affect three times more people than previously thought. There are 150 million people currently living in cities that could be underwater by 2050.
0: Let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God made the beasts of the the earth earth after 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 their their
1: kind, kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground.
2: According to the United Nations-backed report, up to one million species of plants and animals are at risk of extinction, many within decades. And the authors warn that the loss of all that biodiversity could pose a threat to human well-being.
1: And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and Male
0: female, and female. Created them. he created them. them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth,
1: and subdue it, it. and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth.
0: So John, The Repair. That title for this season sounds kind of optimistic. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Well, there's hope in it, anyway. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm upbeat about the odds that we're going to solve this mess we've made.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't call myself optimistic in a straightforward sense, either.
1: You are Amy Westervelt. I'm thrilled to say you're my co-host for Season 5. Amy is a terrific journalist and podcaster. She hosts multiple shows about climate, including Drilled, which is a kind of true crime series about the climate crisis.
0: And you're John Bewin, host and producer of Scene on Radio. This, I have to tell you, is probably my favorite podcast, so I'm really happy to be here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.
0: It's true. Oh, that means a lot. It's true. Well,
1: delighted to be working with, with you on this. So the idea behind the title is not to say the repair is happening anything like the way it needs to uh, yet, but more, I guess, to point to the question we're asking, what would it take to make the changes we would need to make, right? Mm -hmm. Not only to avoid the worst calamities headed our way from the climate emergency, but at the same time, by necessity, to fix the other profound and deeply intertwined injustices we've spent the last few years laying bare on this show.
0: Yes, over the last three seasons, You and your collaborators have told the story of a patriarchal white supremacist society with deeply anti-democratic structures in place. A society built first and foremost for the extraction of wealth by the relative few at the expense of millions of exploited people and the natural world.
1: Yeah. So what might all of that have to do with our ecological crisis?
0: Right, other than everything.
1: (laughs) Having taken on those big questions about who we are as a society, this one seemed like a natural to take on next. And besides climate is humanity's most serious existential challenge, maybe ever. So yeah, so what would repair really mean?
0: To answer that question, we need to get clear about what the problem really is. Where did we go wrong? Like, really, not just in the technologies we created or the fuel we decided to burn in the last few centuries, but in our deepest cultural values. How and where and when did we make such a profoundly wrong turn?
1: Crucially, you and I have been saying we a lot, as in where did we go wrong? Who is this we? From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, this is Seen on Radio, season five, The Repair. A series on the climate crisis that will take us across the world to reckon with the cost of what we've wrought and to learn what we can from people in a variety of cultures about potential solutions.
0: But in this first episode, a very Seen on Radio kind of question, I think. How did we get this way? human beings as a species, and in particular, those of us humans who really drove us off this cliff. One analysis found the US and the European Union, which together have one-tenth of the global population, produced 70% of the excess greenhouse gases that created this crisis. How did the West become the kind of society that would unleash so much destruction on our home, on other living things, and ultimately on ourselves and our children. We're gonna to try to tell that story in our first few episodes. John, you reported this first one. Take it away and we'll talk more in a little while.
4: Okay. Um, i say we're about, what, 6,000 feet here. It's high desert.
1: David Pakusa was 32 it's when I first met him in 2008 on the Hopi reservation. Here David was drawing a line on the earth for planting.
4: One, two, three. So I can see my, that other marker I made with that can over there. So then I'll just, just keep my eye, keep focus on that can, and I'll just mark it with my feet.
1: I was visiting with a co-producer, Camille Lacapa, to record for a public radio series about family farmers. David and his mother and father lived in the village of Bakavi on Third Mesa. They farm on small plots that lay on plateaus below the mesas.
4: So then I look back to see if I made a straight line to my other marker, so
1: that looks good to me. Hopi farmers raise corn and beans and gather wild plants like spinach and berries, pretty much as their ancestors have in this place for thousands of years. The Hopi people say their ancestors migrated from other places in the southwest and in Mexico starting between two and 3,000 years ago and formed the Hopi nation in what's now also
4: called northern Arizona. The, the sand, we have uh, brown sand, uh, sage, uh, yucca, Mormon tea, and most of the brush is like l- really low to the ground. I had a friend say, it looks like Mars.
1: (laughs) David's father, Davis, was in his 70s when we met. Davis used an old Massey Ferguson tractor to plant his crops. You can hear the father's machine in the background, planting corn a field away. David, the son, is more traditional than his father. On this day in early May, David's planting
4: beans by hand. I have a hoe, so I'm going to scrape scrape down till I reach you know the where it's wet like this so and that's really good because it's it looks really moist so you could see where the top part is all dry and then underneath it's still wet then I'll get my planting stick it's just uh, it's like a flat hole two inch wide So traditionally they use the greasewood stick I'll just kind of break up the wet dirt see how moist it is and I'll go down maybe six inches or so seven inches then I'll refill it about halfway and I loosen it enough down underneath it that when the roots come out that will shoot straight down and it will be easier to establish itself these lima beans these uh, seeds are like real hardy we try commercial stuff commercial seeds or um, things that aren't used to be planting in the desert they'll die because they don't know what to do i'll put about 6 in there What I do is see this um, the eye I guess I'll I'll put it in down so that way the roots won't shoot down and I plant them kind of far apart in the hole that I'm not letting them touch because in a couple days when they absorb all the moisture they're going to get really fat and they say if they're touching it's going to rot. The sprouts inside is going to rot kind of pressing them in into the into the soft dirt that I made them like that so this kind of planting will take a while then I learned that it just really it makes you conscious of what you're doing you're not just throwing seeds in you're you're, it seems like establishing a good uh, relationship from the beginning with each seed (laughs)
1: The Hopi practice dry farming, using those hardy, desert-friendly seeds their ancestors passed down over centuries. They rely on whatever moisture the desert offers up in a given year, snow running off the mesas in the spring, the hit-or-miss monsoons that roll across the desert in summertime. Most Hopi farmers, including the Pakusas, do not irrigate. They don't use synthetic fertilizers, not even manure. That would betray a lack of faith and gratitude to the spirits, some of whom are ancestors. As a farmer, David is part of something much bigger than simply growing food for his family. He tells me when he's working in the fields, he's got company.
4: All through this, in this little, between that, Mesa and then in this little corner it's just full of um, ruins you'll find part pot shards here and there so people have been living here for or farming here for a long time prehistoric people would were farming through here I always go with that kind of attitude that there's things that been here way older than me and and that they see my intentions what I'm doing and that, that I'm asking their permission and also to aid me in, in my work in farming. You know, I can feel it. There's all these energies around and there's that there's all kind of things that help, you know, your ancestors or the things of this land and, and the whole reason why we plant. So I, I'm just I'm just the tool, you know. I'm not the source of it happening. I'm just the one that's you know, putting the seeds in and taking care of it. And so I try to do it in a real respectful way. David and the way
1: he talks about farming may seem strikingly out of step through the lens of our 21st century technologized extractive society. But in the sweep of human history, the Hopis are not the odd ones. Anthropologists say that for most of the last two or three hundred thousand years, that is, for most of human history, David's humble approach to creation was the norm. His sense that he has to serve nature, not the other way around, that was pretty much universal. Haven't most of us tried to imagine people in deep history trying to make sense of the world before science came along to explain the mechanics of it all? The sun, the moon, the rain, the days and the seasons what makes things grow while the elements and other creatures felt like threats much of the time would it have occurred to those people out there surviving in small foraging bands that they were somehow categorically separate from the rest of the world let alone in charge of it that it all had been created for their use how and when did humans begin to think that way
3: we're
1: back to where we opened this episode with the book of Genesis. Scholars now think people pieced the book together from the work of several Hebrew writers, roughly five or six hundred years BCE, before the Common Era.
4: My name is Bina Neil.
1: Uh, my research is a... Bina Nir is a professor at the academic college of Emek Yezreel in Israel. She's a former scientist who studies Western culture and its roots in religion. Nir is more comfortable in Hebrew, so she did most of the interview in that language. She says the Hebrew thinkers who wrote the Genesis creation story made a fundamental break with every known culture of the time
3: because in the pre-biblical world, in Greece too, but mainly in the pagan world, people lived in harmony with nature, and the gods were part of nature, and everything was in nature.
1: In other ancient religions, gods often possessed powers that humans didn't, but with limits. In many ways, nature ruled them too. That describes indigenous and pagan spiritual beliefs all over the world, in Asia, Africa, Europe, Australia, the Americas. Also, the powerful empires, Greece and Rome. There, many gods had foibles, imperfections, and struggles. Then, along comes the all-powerful God of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Bina calls this understanding of God revolutionary. I
3: think that we need to talk about this revolution on a few levels. One level is the perception of an abstract God. Second is God's separation from nature.
1: The God of Genesis seems to exist before the natural world and decides to create it. He's not part of it. Another revolutionary concept, Bina says, is what seems to be a clear hierarchy, at least in Genesis. I think
3: it is important to emphasize that according to the biblical perspective, the world was created for man. That is the main idea.
1: And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's just pause to notice the use of the male terms, at least in English. For God, he, and for humanity, man. The language is less clearly gendered in ancient Hebrew, and most Jewish theologians say God transcends gender. But elsewhere, Hebrew scripture refers to God as father and as the bridegroom, God's people being his bride. The New Testament, of course, describes God the father, and the Christian God takes human form as a man, Jesus. Christian artists have rendered God as male almost without exception. Think of the iconic Sistine Chapel deity with the flowing beard. Whatever theologians may say about God's gender, the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam took root in overwhelmingly patriarchal cultures. Bina Nir argues the God of the Bible has a masculine will that lines up with a notion like dominion. If man invented God,
3: it says something about the people who invented this masculine God.
1: What exactly it meant for humanity in ethical terms that God had given humans dominion over the rest of creation, that was open to debate, as we'll see. But Binanir highlights one other profound conceptual shift the writers of Genesis introduced. In the story of Adam and Eve and that forbidden fruit, and then in the Cain and Abel story, where Cain kills his brother and faces none other than the Almighty. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? We see humans doing things God clearly does not want them to do. People can do what they want. The idea of
3: free will was a revolution in the ancient world where there was only inevitability and destiny. Destiny.
1: Most ancient cultures held deterministic beliefs. Individual humans were at the mercy of the gods, essentially passengers riding their destinies to a foregone conclusion. In Greek mythology, those three goddesses, the Moirai, decided each person's fate. Likewise, in the Nordic religion of Odin and Thor and Freya, dramatized here in the TV series Vikings, set in the 10th century.
0: I have no desire to be queen.
4: I know. But you know perfectly well you cannot decide your own fate. For it is already written.
1: Add up the innovations that Bina Nir finds in Genesis. A God that stands beyond the natural world and creates it out of nothing, then creates humans in God's image. Humanity gets dominion over all living things and freedom to shape our own destiny. In
3: a secular interpretation, I treat this text as a projection of human desires.
1: It's liberating, isn't it? It reminds me of the Enlightenment in terms of a major shift in human thinking that, that has a kind of opening quality.
3: No doubt this revolution is also a positive revolution. Without free will, science would not have developed. Without this concept, we would not have achieved modernity. Curiosity, the feeling that life is not deterministic. It's only a pity that these things went along with humanity's domination of nature.
1: If this is right, if those Jewish thinkers a few thousand years ago wrote stuff down that nudged humanity onto the path toward our current ecological crisis, that's only a piece of the story. As Bina Nir points out, Judaism was never evangelical. Those ancient Hebrews had no interest in winning over converts to their ideas.
3: The biblical narrative was at first in a very limited area. It was actually Christianity that spread it in a very meaningful way.
1: Ah, so we can blame Christianity for driving the world into the ecological ditch. Or is that too simple too? That shift in Genesis, the introduction of a God who gives humanity dominion over the rest of nature, did not by itself bring about a drastic change in the ways people behaved. For one thing, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament to Christians, wasn't consistent on that point.
2: Because Genesis 1 is the beginning of the Bible, it kind of stands out. But if you look elsewhere in the Bible, there are completely contradictory messages.
1: Kate Rigby is an Australian scholar who directs the Research Center for the Environmental Humanities at Bath Spa University in England. She says, for instance, God does not elevate humanity nearly so much in the book of Job.
2: You know, Job saying, oh, woe is me. Why have these terrible things happened to me? And he gets this harangue, <laughs> this voice, the voice from, the, from the, the wind, the storm. Yahweh speaks and sort of basically says, look, I make it to rain on the desert where no man dwells.
1: Who has split open a channel for the flood and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a person in it? to make the seeds of grass
0: to sprout.
2: And by the way, do you know about the lives of the, of the ravens and all the other creatures, and names a whole lot of wild creatures? He says, you don't understand their lives. I care about them.
1: The God of Job seems to be saying, it ain't all about you, buddy. And Rigby says, whatever Genesis said about dominion, the most important early Christian thinkers did not take it to mean. Let's just go out and use nature wantonly for our benefit. Take Basil of Caesarea, sometimes called Saint Basil the Great. He was Greek, an important theologian and bishop in Asia Minor, today's Turkey, in the fourth century.
2: And um, I have to confess, I've grown very, very fond of Basil.
1: (laughs) Kate has been studying theologians through Christian history who interpreted the creation story in Genesis. Such a reflection is called a hexameron, referring to the six days of creation.
2: Basil was perhaps the most influential of these earlier hexameral writers.
1: Basil delivered his hexameron as a series of sermons during the year 370 in the Basilica of Caesarea.
2: And the overall gist of these homilies is to exhort the congregation to lift their gaze beyond the world of human making and to marvel in the natural world that they did not make but that god called into being and they they basically they just are the most breathless celebration of nature. He keeps on saying, he says things like, there are so many things I could talk about. What, what am I going to choose? What am I going to leave out? You know. And he says, oh, my discourse has run away with me. Night has fallen. <laughs> you know, and you're still sitting here. Oh, and I've forgotten to talk about the birds. <laughs> and he just. He's so, you know, this guy is an eco-freak and he's just really trying to encourage his congregation to share his enthusiasm for nature.
1: Rigby says Basil's account of the creation story is incomplete. He parses it up to the sixth day when God creates man and woman and stops.
2: The homilies break off with the making of the first humans but before the verses about humans having dominion. And, you know, it looks like he he was really uncomfortable with that, and he actually didn't want to go there, and so he didn't.
1: Basil was a leader in the East, where the Orthodox Church later took root. A major early thinker in the Western part of the Christian world, Augustine.
2: You know, I've tended to... um, have a fairly dim view of Augustine, um, mainly because he seems to have saddled Western Christianity in particular with an absolutely terrible attitude towards sexuality that sexuality is somehow connected with the original sin, absolutely appalling stuff. But then I started reading more about his reflections on on creation, and he 's just so enamored of other critters and little things like worms and ants and annoying things like mosquitoes. He says, well, I don't know why God made these things, but are they not marvelous when you look at them in themselves? Are they not fabulous? So that's all quite endearing.
1: Augustine, like Basil, wrote extensively on Genesis and its meaning. In his analysis, Augustine does get all the way through the six days but just doesn't have much to say about the whole dominion thing, Kate says. Seems that didn't rank high among his takeaways. Yes, she says, there were other early Christian thinkers who adopted the idea that God made the plants and non-human animals for people.
2: There's this idea that because the um, the account is seen as culminating on the sixth day with the creation of humans, even in that late period of late antiquity, you do get this idea among some of the commentators that the rest of creation is to subserve human interests. So that you can find.
1: It's also true that Augustine, for all his appreciation of non-human animals, made a hard distinction between us and them. He said, only humans are rational creatures, not brutes, and only humans have souls. That kind of thinking clearly justified domesticating and using animals for human benefit. But treating animals as livestock was not new to the post-Genesis world or to Christianity. And think about it. For a solid millennium after Basil and Augustine's time, all through the Middle Ages, the technologies that Christian societies used didn't change much, as in the rest of the world. David Pecusa, the Hopi farmer, his kind of planting would have looked ordinary the world over. People did most everything by hand or with simple machines or with the help of an ox or a horse. Humanity's impact on the rest of the natural world stayed pretty gentle, certainly compared to what would come later. True, people had not yet invented powerful tools of extraction and pollution, but maybe in a culture concerned mostly with piety, they weren't in a hurry to. The West had not yet constructed a culture of reckless exploitation. To finish building that violent machine, Europeans would need to bolt on a few more parts.
0: To be continued.
1: (laughs) Yes, we've still got to get to the part where we really went off the rails. Amy Westervelt is back as in past seasons with my collaborators and co-hosts. You and I are gonna spend a little time unpacking a few ideas at the end of each episode.
0: Right. Uh, So Kate Rigby seems to be saying that in Christianity, once Christianity sort of became the main force for spreading this story in the book of Genesis, that there was always some tension about the meaning of dominion. That pretty clear statement in Genesis chapter one, that God put humanity in charge of the rest of nature.
1: That's right. Um, Did dominion mean that God was handing over the earth and the other creatures to humans to serve our desires, to use it all as we wish, even destroy it if that suits us?
0: Or was God giving humanity a sacred responsibility to act as stewards of the plants, the animals, and the earth.
1: Yeah, that tension would persist, and it still does, really. Mm. But it would get more intense, and the stakes would get much higher centuries later, as we'll hear in the next episode.
0: Okay, but however you interpret it, the whole Dominion thing does seem like a problem. I mean, declaring our species to be in charge of the world, or really claiming that a deity has put us in charge... That's an arrogant, anthropocentric take, no matter which way you look at it.
1: I see that. um, But (laughs) I wonder if there's a less narcissistic way to look at it. Um, Humans have shown, unfortunately, that we have tendencies and capabilities that put us in a unique category as a species, it seems to me. Mm. I mean, could whales or chimps do to the planet what we've done? That's not necessarily about saying we're the best or the most important species. It could be about admitting that we're uniquely dangerous so we have a special responsibility.
0: Mm, Because of our big brains, opposable thumbs our ability to invent toxic chemicals and powerful contraptions. That makes sense. And then add to that our consciousness, which includes a sense of our own importance and ambition and ego, a wish to dominate. Mm -hmm. And you do get this sort of distinctive ability to transform the environment and to completely wreck things for other creatures and for ourselves.
1: And I'll go ahead and say it. I am not a religious person not a Christian or Jewish believer. For me personally, this is not about taking scripture as some kind of real-world guide or needing to find an interpretation of Genesis that I can defend, though of course for a lot of people it could be about that.
0: Yeah, I'm not particularly religious either. I grew up really Catholic, went to church every Sunday, did catechism, that whole thing. My my dad was a Mexican Catholic who had a Bible in all of our bathrooms, <laughs> but, <laughs> and I went to Catholic high school too. But my parents didn't want to force my brother or me to join the church, and they sort of left it up to us. They gave us this, this big decision when we were 17, and not, neither one of us really went for it. <laughs> right. So I'm right. not religious at all today, but I did get a big dose of it in my youth. And on the nature front, I think Catholics are pretty obsessed with St. Francis of Assisi and this sort of stewardship approach. Like there's this yeah. this very kind of – there's this one statue that like you see in every Catholic auntie's yard that's like St. Francis with – with kind of snow white vibes with like birds on his hand and squirrels at his feet, you know? (laughs) Um,
1: Right, right, right.
0: But the Catholic church is also the church that cooked up indulgences for the rich. So, you know, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's a mixed bag, right? Yeah. 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 I think my Catholic grandmother might've had that St. Francis too. They
0: all do. They all do. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But what we're trying to do is to understand what happened historically and how we got here, including the question of how much to blame any one factor, such as the impulse to claim dominion over nature, on the Abrahamic religions. It seems you could argue for an interpretation of dominion, that biblical idea that just recognizes the peculiar power humans have to do damage.
0: Right, and then an interpretation that's really about responsibility and stewardship because of that power, right? Mm, And that seems to be the way that some really important Christian thinkers, like Basil at least, saw things for a time. Mm -hmm. But Dominion still feels like a ticking time bomb or, Mm. I don't know, pick your other terrible metaphor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've come to think of it as a permission slip uh, Mm. written and tucked quietly into a book on the shelf that somebody could pull out when they really wanted to use it.
0: Oh, I love that. it's like, look, God said it was okay, this horribly destructive thing I'm about to do. It's fine, it's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, looking at the chunk of history that we've covered so far, moving from the ancient world into the early Christian era, looking at it through the frame of this series uh, has got me thinking in a different way about the Middle Ages, the long stretch that sometimes people used to call the Dark Ages.
0: Right. That's so interesting. It was later during the Renaissance, maybe starting in the 14th century, that Europeans started really dissing the medieval period, (laughs) especially that early part from 5th century to the year 1000 or so. They were drawing a contrast to their own time and to ancient Greece and Rome, the so-called classical era. Renaissance thinkers celebrated the Greeks and Romans for what they saw as their greater cultural achievements and rationality compared to what followed in the Middle Ages.
1: And of course, there's something to that. Mm. Personally, I am for reason and science and freedom of thought. I'd rather live in a society not ruled by religious dogma, which pretty much describes medieval Europe. But life and history are complicated. And change pretty much always means trade offs, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. We can look at medieval Europe as a place and time where people were sort of hunkered down, living steady lives, pursuing piety, and conforming to the edicts of the church. In other words, not pushing the boundaries, not inventing lots of new stuff, not revolutionizing much of anything, or exploring and conquering new worlds, certainly not compared with what would come
2: later.
1: They weren't pushing the changes that would lead us to where we are today, well on our way to recklessly and arrogantly destroying the only home we have. We'll be telling more of that story in the next couple of episodes.
0: But before we leave this one, there's another important piece of the puzzle that I think we should talk more about. Patriarchy. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've touched on it only a little so far. You did a whole season about it. In your men's series in season three, you found that patriarchy was widespread in the world long before anyone started writing Genesis.
1: Yes, uh, it apparently emerged about 10 or 12,000 years ago, along with the development of more complex agriculture based societies.
0: Patriarchy is a system of domination and control. So if that's the underlying problem we're talking about here, human beings deciding that they have the right to contain and dominate and use other beings for their benefit. Well, I mean, men were doing all of the above to women in most so-called civilizations in the time frame we're talking about here.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There were exceptions, including among some indigenous cultures in this hemisphere. By the way, in the Hopi tradition, the natural world, uh, humanity included, of course, was created by Mother Earth, hmm. not the abstract male or maleish god of the Bible. And like the Cherokee people we heard about in Season 4, traditional Hopi governance is clan-based and matrilineal. David Bakusa, the Hopi farmer we heard in this episode, he's talked to me about Hopi reverence for women and for the feminine.
0: All of that shows in his really nurturing approach to farming. Mm -hmm. But to bring it back to that, we, the Western culture that would eventually claim a very violent dominion over the earth and its resources, as we came to call them, that was and is a male dominated culture. Yeah. A culture that long ago decided to draw lines and build hierarchies. The line between men and women with rigid definitions of what that binary looked like, mm-hmm. who and what men and women were, what their roles were, and who would control whom.
1: Yeah, maybe male dominance over women was the original sin, which would kind of set the pattern. <laughs> I'm a man and I have God-given dominion over my
0: woman. It's not a huge stretch to say, come to think of it, seems I have God-given dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing on earth. (laughs) And along the way, dominion over other human beings who don't practice my religion or look like me. Yeah. But we'll have a lot more to say about that, won't we?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in episode two. Amy, you mentioned the term natural resources. Let's take a minute and talk about language.
0: I know, right? I feel like that term really points to this deep cultural inheritance in the English language and in Western thinking, and the fact that it's hard to talk about this stuff without perpetuating really skewed ways of thinking. When you know, you're talking about resources, you're assuming an exploitative relationship. The trees and the minerals and the animals exist for our use.
1: Mm-hmm. I keep finding myself getting ready to say phrases like humans and our relationship to nature. <laughs> when in fact, humans are nature, right? right. We're yeah. part of it. And the very notion that we're separate now, just so deeply embedded in the, in the way we talk, uh, the very notion that we're separate is key to how we went wrong as a culture. So I try to catch myself and say, you know, our relationship with the rest of nature or with other living creatures, phrases like that.
0: Right. But even the word nature and the meaning it's taken on in Western culture is kind of a problem. We're going to get to that a couple of episodes from now.
1: Amy Westervelt. Next time more of the story of how we got this way, moving into the somewhat more recent past, from the crusades to capitalism. Come on along. Our story editor this season is Cheryl Duvall. Music by Lily Hayden, Kim Carroll, Chris Westlake, Alex Weston, and Cora Miran. Music consulting by Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. Translation and voiceover by Rachel Ariel, and voiceover by Scott Hewler. I made the recordings you heard of David Pacusa for a 2009 public radio series, Five Farms, which you can find at fivefarms.com. The executive producer of that project was Wesley Horner. Our website, where we post transcripts and other stuff about the show, is seenonradio.org. Seen on Radio is distributed by PRX, The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.